Good morning. As Melissa mentioned, we are here in this first week of Advent, and it's pretty exciting. The church is beautiful this morning. Um, my name is Angela. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we get started, if you don't have a notes page, please um, raise your hand, and we're going to get a notes page. We're going to use it later on today, so I'd love for you to have a notes page and a pen with you. Um, so it's Advent. I know a lot of us have been really excited about this season. A lot of us have been waiting for the, the Christmas season, the Advent season to start. I know this because I've seen your social media posts. I've seen the Christmas trees that went up like pretty much the day after Halloween. Um, I've seen, if you drive down my neighborhood, Christmas lights have been up for like two months. You guys, it is, everybody is just more anxious, I think, than normal to have this season start. And I think a big part of that is because we all know that this is the season that signifies hope. And this is a season when we need that hope. This is a year when we're desperate for that hope. And as I think about hope, I want to start off with two stories for you this morning. One is about baseball, and the other is about birth. Totally related, but not really. Okay, so the year was 1988, and yes, I am a NorCal girl now, but my formative years were tied to this team in Los Angeles called the Dodgers. Oh my gosh, I knew this was going to happen. I knew Ocho was here. Okay, I, was, I braced myself for that. Um, but I grew up watching the Dodgers play. I remember seeing the Bat Boys at the stadiums, thinking, oh, there should be Bat Girls. I want to be part of that. And then I even collected the baseball cards. And I'm not sure if any of you have ever collected baseball cards. I don't know if people still do that. They were awesome. The gum, not so awesome. Tastes like cardboard. But anyways, I knew the players' stats. I knew all of that. And then, you know what happened? Here I was, an avid fan, and in 1988, we went to the World Series. And we were playing against the Oakland A's, who were by far the favorite team to win. And those of you who are, might be some A's fans here, you probably remember 1988 well, too. Um, it was a phenomenal year for them. And what happened is something set the tone for the whole game, and it happened, a whole series, in game one. Um, there was a player, and his name was Kirk Gibson, great hitter, but he'd injured himself. Both, not one leg, but both of the legs were totally wrecked. He's not even introduced at the beginning of the game. Um, but it's the, it's the bottom of the ninth. The A's are winning. They bring in their closing pitcher, and Gibson, with two outs, says he wants to hit. Okay, so he wants to go in, and he's, he can, he's barely hobbling, right? And it doesn't really make sense. Even if he hits a ground ball, he's not very fast. But for whatever reason, they send this guy in. And he does basically the only thing that could change this game. He hits a home run. There's one guy in base. He hits a home run on this great closing pitcher, and the Dodgers win. And, and it's, only, it's his only appearance in the entire series. It's this one, one little piece. But guess what? They win in five games out of a seven-game series. It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing thing that happens. And I have to say, um, as a um, Dodgers fan, there's this moment that as he's going through these bases and he's hobbling, it feels like it's out of a movie. It would be his only appearance, like I said, but it's what everyone remembers. And then, as he's rounding the bases, Ben Scully, who's a well-known Dodgers announcer, says in this great quote, almost theological quote, but, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And to me, that moment feels like yesterday. I've talked about it. 
I've told my kids about it over and over again. Uh, it's fueled my belief that someday my team could win the World Series again. And guess what? I thought about it every single year for 32 years. And after 32 seasons, last month, guess what? The Dodgers are the World Series champions. So my hope for my team was shaped by something that I experienced a long time ago. Because hope is shaped by the events of the past. I just heard a podcast recently talking about this idea of hope, and this guy said, hope is looking forward by looking backward. What we know or what we experience changes us. Okay, one more quick story. I have given birth to four of my children. Each birth has been a challenge. For those of you who have given birth, you know what I mean by this. Birth is not like a walk in the park. It's not an easy experience. And while my first birth was actually one of my shorter births, at the time it didn't feel short. It was hard on a level that was different than physical pain. Because I knew, theoretically, that humans do come in the world this way, but it had not happened to me. And in the midst of that pain, I wasn't really sure it would happen, or I wasn't sure that the pain would ever end. But then, when I had my daughter, Caitlin, and my body did what it was supposed to do, and she arrived, it just, everything changed. Up until that moment, I was hoping without experience. I was hoping without any real personal knowledge. I had never done that. I didn't know how it was going to go down. But in that moment, when she emerged into this world, I got it. It was a different way. All of my labor meant something. And I had, and with my children who were born after that, it was still hard. It still wasn't easy. But I had a different kind of expectation. I had a different kind of confidence. I had not only experienced this pain before, but I had experienced the end results. This morning, I'd like us to look at a passage from the book of Mark, one of the Gospels, and it's Mark 13. And we're going to talk about hope. And when we read this passage, it may not feel very hopeful, but we're going to dig into it today. So Mark 13, 24 to 27, let's read this first section. So these are the words Jesus is telling a few of his disciples about the future. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So right away we encounter a lot of poetic language. It says things like the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. And this is the type of imagery that they would have been used to hearing from the Old Testament prophets. The prophets used this type of language when things were bad, when there was a war, when there was a famine, when things were just calamitous. This is what the old prophets, they used this type of poetic language. And here Jesus is most likely talking about the upcoming war with Rome, where the temple is going to be destroyed, Judea is going to be devastated. He's foretelling some events that are going to shake their world up. These same events are also at the same time hinting at a bigger event, when all things will come to the end. And it's important to note that Jesus is here in the midst of this passage, in the midst of the good things that are happening and the bad. Um, Tertullian, who's an early Christian leader, 
from Africa, he wrote about this passage, and he says, the Son of Man is coming in the midst of both calamities and promises, both grief of nations and the longing of saints. He is the common element in both. Jesus is here in the midst of all of it, and Jesus continues to be here with us in the midst of all of it. Throughout history, and even currently, a lot of people cling to what they call the theology of eschatology. And by eschatology, I just mean it's concerned with death and judgment and the final destination of humankind and of souls. And I read a few weeks ago about this type of theology, this eschatology, and it said those who cling to this are the oppressed. And at first that sounded a little strange, because when you're suffering, why would you focus on death? Why would you focus on judgment? Yet the intentional look, how th- look at how things are going to end up is important to the oppressed because it's actually the theology of hope. Because when things seem to be at their worst, we want to go to the end of the story. We want to know. We need to know that the ending is good. And that is where our hope is. And that's why that hope is so vital to those who are suffering. And as followers of Jesus, it makes sense that we cling to this hope. Because Christian hope is not based on the odds. It's based on the person of God. It's based on the character of God. And we cling to the truth that someday things will all be set right. And we have hope knowing that someday everything is going to be restored. That's our hope. Jesus defeated death, and his resurrection changed everything. This world might be a mess, but we know the final outcome, and it's good. And it's good that we have this end-game hope, and it's right that we can look to the future with confidence in our Savior. But there's more, because we can't just stop there. Because Jesus is talking about hope for the future, and Jesus is talking about a hope for the now. All my life, I've grown up with Christians who spend a lot of time talking about the end times and when God will return and what it's going to look like and how it's going to go down. And it can be easy for us to get just kind of fixated in that. It can be easy for us just to hold on to that part of the hope and nothing else. Sometimes I think we hang on to hope in such a way that we don't see anything else. We focus on the ending so much that we fail to engage in the present. There's hope for the future, absolutely, and there's hope for the present because hope affects our current situation. It's not just something we put up on a shelf and we wait for. Being saved by the blood of Jesus is not about just hanging in there and waiting for the ending. It's not about finding a safe place to hide and waiting until all the mess blows over. Because being a follower of Jesus is about the end, and it is about the now. It has to be both. So back to those two stories, baseball and birth. Both of those experiences were affected by where I was in those stories. And my hope is different based on what has happened. So here we are. We're followers of Jesus in 2020 A.D. And that changes our hope because we where we are in the story. Being a follower of Jesus today has us living between hopes. It has us surrounded by hope. Because this season, we celebrate God coming to earth and becoming human. But we're born after that event. 
that event that so many before us waited for and hoped for, we're born after it's already happened. And our access to hope is different than so many who came before that event. And I may think I'm just waiting for hope sometimes. Sometimes I think I'm just waiting for hope to come. But the truth is, hope has come. And hope is here. And hope is still coming. I want to look at a letter that was written to some Jewish Christians. It's in the New Testament. It's a book called Hebrews. And the people who received this letter are actually born a long time ago, but they're like us because they came they were here on earth after Jesus came as that baby, after Jesus lived on earth, after Jesus died on the cross, after Jesus defeated death. Yet in this letter, the author wants to talk to them about these people who've come before them. So Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of like the hall of fame of biblical Old, Old Testament legends. I'm not going to read it all, but it talks about the faith. And these are amazing stories, amazing people. And we come back to this recurring phrase, by faith. And if you're one of the kids who's here today, this is a great moment to listen to these names. See if you know the stories. And if you see a name you don't know, write it down. You're going to want to look for it, because these are great stories about legends of the Old Testament. And the chapter starts out with this phrase, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. And it goes on to talk about the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph, then Moses' parents, Moses himself, the Israelites who passed through the Red Sea, the army that walked around Jericho, Rahab, and then he after he tells all these little stories about each one of these, he even admits that there's still more. There's Gideon, there's Brock, there's Samson, there's Jephthah, there's David, there's Samuel, and there's more prophets. And then we go in with this, this great list of these, like, just heroes. And it says, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised. You see, they had a hope that was a little bit more distant than ours. They had a hope that someday... God was going to make things right. Someday, they didn't know how, but God was going to fix some things. Someday, a Messiah would come. They hoped for that future. They expected something without the knowledge that it happened, without the knowledge of how it could happen. The change is explained even earlier in this book. It talks about that there was a moment when everything changed because of Jesus. Before, they had these earthly priests who would die But then this new priest arrives, who's Jesus. And the writer says that based on Jesus, and I love this phrase, indestructible life, everything changes. And then in Hebrews 7, 18, it says, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Imperfect regulation is replaced by a better hope. And that better hope allows us to draw near to God in a way that these people never could have, never would have been able to. And this is where we are right now. We are living in the middle of hope. We are living post-resurrection, and we're living in the light of what Jesus has already done for us, yet we are also living in the hope 
of God, what God will complete someday. Do you feel the tension there? We are people living in the middle. We have better hope than many who lived before, and yet our hope continues to yearn for complete restoration of heaven and earth. We're people who are surrounded by hope. I know sometimes it may not feel that way. In the midst of brokenness and pain, we have a better hope based on what Jesus did, and we are surrounded by it. We have a better hope knowing that work is happening right now. We have a better hope because we're able to participate in that hope in such a deeper way. We are a people who can hope differently because of the resurrection, and we are a people who experience the power of the Holy Spirit because our sins have been atoned for. We can be temples in which God lives. Talk about being nearer. Jesus did the work that the Holy Spirit needed to do, needed for us, for him to be able to reside in us. Yet, things are still broken, and this world is not the finished product. But we can have that nearness with Jesus in the midst of all of it. Earlier, I mentioned Tertullian, and he said he is, that Jesus is in the midst of the calamities and of the promises. And guess what? So are we. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, and yet he continues to work through us today as we hope in that truth, and in the truth that someday it's all going to be restored. At the end of this chapter, Mark 13, Jesus warns his followers to be watchful. He is telling us that we need to be aware that there will be a time when Jesus will return. But the calling here is not to get, up, get caught up in the when or the how or whatever ways that might distract us, but to be people who are so awake and so aware that we live expecting and participating with the living Christ in the present and knowing that someday he will return. He will complete all things. This is why we can see hope. This is why we can find hope because it is Jesus and his truth that is working right now within us, through us, and for us. The hope that comes from Christ is not just about hanging in there. It's not about survival. When Jesus commands us to stay awake, he's not telling us to be comfortable or just to sit tight. The command is to not to wait around in the brokenness and say, oh, it's okay. Jesus is coming back, and when he gets there, he'll fix everything. We're told to find a safe place. We're not told to find a safe place to lay low and wait for God's return because we have been saved. Jesus is telling us that there is work to be done. We're being tapped to be an active part in the building of God's new creation because the hope is real, and that hope is for today and for tomorrow. And when we engage in that, it doesn't just affect our perspectives, but this is the hope that the entire world needs to experience. So today, as we think about hope, I want to just take a few minutes, if you look at your notes page, and as I look for hope, it's really not about things happening the way that I think they should happen or everything going back to the way that I think it should go back. Christian hope is about trusting God to redeem all things because we know his character and we know his love. 
Before we engage with the notes page, I want to share two areas of my life where I have been looking for hope. And I found it through seeing perseverance and adaptability and through service. One of, my, one of the big pieces of my life is I'm a parent. And in 2020, I have seen things fall apart all over the place for my kids. As a parent, I've seen them disappointed. I've seen them disappointed by things that I had no control to begin to fix. And I've looked for hope in this season, and, I've, and the hope that I've seen is the way that I've seen my kids adapt and persevere. Things are a mess, and actually they continue to be a mess. But I see the evidence of God's work in their lives, and the reason that I have hope is that those parts of who they are and the work that God is doing in their lives is bigger than this season and these situations. Their faith in these moments reminds me what is lasting and what will continue to draw them nearer to God now and for seasons to come. I see hope in their adaptability and in their perseverance. As a pastor in 2020, I've seen a lot of sadness. I've seen people who continue to be hit wave after wave of challenges and setbacks. There are weeks when I look at the list of prayer requests from this community, and it just feels overwhelming. And all we can do is just ask for God's mercy. Where do I see the hope there? I see hope because I know the stories, and I know the pain that are part of people's lives, and yet I still continue to see people serve Jesus and serve one another. I see people who are struggling but continue to look outward and encourage one another. I talk to people who are asking God every single week to show them how they can be a light to others. The hope for me is that this group of people, this community, is not just a club. It's not just a place we come to once a week, but we are part of what God is doing in the work of restoration. This community is doing real work in the lives of the church. And that his love is real and his love is active in the hearts of people. I think in this season, when everybody has been hit hard in one way or another, I've never heard so many individuals reach out and ask how they can help someone else. This season is hard, but the authenticity of this community to serve and give despite all of that is a huge source of help. It goes beyond this current context. I see hope in the way this community serves one another. So right now, as you look at your notes page, I want you just to think about two to three areas of your life, two to three roles that you have. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're a mentor. Maybe you're a father. Maybe you're a sister, a friend a grandmother, just maybe just at the, at, under one, two, and three, just write two to three different roles that describe you. After you've named two to three areas, we're just going to focus on one right now. I want you to Write down what is making you weary in one of those areas. You can, you can do the others later today, but let's just focus on one right now. 
What is making you weary? Where is the struggle? What makes you tired? What makes you feel defeated? What makes it hard to be a friend right now? Maybe it's a friendship to a certain individual. What makes that so hard? As a grandmother, what makes being a grandmother so tiring? Where is your struggle with that in this season? What makes you feel defeated? After you've named a few things, I want you to look at those lists, those challenges under that role, and then ask yourself, where do I see hope? Where do I see hope in this situation? Where do I see hope in this role? This one may take a little bit more time. I hope at some point today or this week, you can do this for the two or three roles that you mentioned. Go ahead and continue to fill this out. Continue to think through these things in your life. And I hope that in this season you can be mindful of where hope is in your life and choose to look for it.